And Father, we pray in your presence that indeed this worship service would bring you glory. That we would recognize that you are the great almighty God and that your promises never fail. Lord, you're faithful to your word and you're faithful to your people and you will not forget them. In the midst of a time in which we see so much going on in this world that seems crazy, it seems like there is no control, let us remember that you are the sovereign God and you rule over the world. We pray these things in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, I have a verse for you mothers today on Mother's Day, taken from Isaiah 49 and verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child or a mother forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Though they may forget, God says, I will not forget you. It goes against nature for a mother to, for, to forget her child. But even if it could happen, and in some extreme cases it does happen, God says, I will never forget you. Have you felt forgotten of God? There's an amazing story back in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, and let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with one of the pew Bibles in the rack before you. 1 Samuel chapter 1 tells us the story of a woman who longed to be a mom and felt that God had forgotten her. In verse one and two, we're told that there was a certain man from the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram. He had two wives, one was called Hannah, the other Penina, or Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. The story starts out, first of all, with a virtuous man, a good man. As is implied by the first couple of verses, he was a man of some status. When you mention a genealogy and lineage as his is given in verse one, it usually points out to the fact that he had some influence in his society and a man of some degree of resources because he could maintain two wives. And he did that in good character. Added to all of that, verse three tells us he was a godly man. Because year after year, this man went up from his town, that is Ramah, and went up about 15 miles to worship and sacrifice to the Lord God Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were the priests of the Lord, which means that the tabernacle 
of the Lord was also there at Shiloh, making it a very special place. Judges chapter 21 tells us that there was to be an annual feast in Shiloh. And the people would gather together from all over Israel in this festive time to rejoice and offer sacrifices and give thanks. So we notice from verse 4 that whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. And you get the impression that this is a woman with a huge clan. It doesn't tell us exactly, but it just says all her sons and daughters. The portions of meat had two purposes. Number one, there was the sacrificial aspect of the meat. But then a portion of the meat was kept and there was a great barbecue. If you want to know one of the main smells of the Old Testament temple, it'd be like an outdoor barbecue. I don't know about you, but that's a great smell to me. And he made sure that his wife and her entire family was provided. He was a responsible man. His faith in God caused him to treat his wives properly. But then we read in the next verse, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Again, being responsible to his family, he did not neglect Penina, although she was the wife he didn't love as much as Hannah. And to Hannah, he gave a double portion. The Hebrew is rather difficult here. It might mean the same portion, but Hannah was all alone without children. So if you give the same portion to a family with a lot of kids and the same portion then to a woman who's alone, you'll sense something of his favor and of her kindness. And the scripture tells that he did this for two reasons. Number one, because he loved her. Now there might have been some degree of love for Panina, but there was a greater love for Hannah. This reminds me of Jacob and his multiple wives who loved Rachel more than all the others because indeed from her the son of Joseph uh, came and he was, he was the special son because he was born of the special wife. Can you imagine all the problems this would create in a family? I mean, first of all, having two wives is a bit of a problem, although it happened a lot in the Old Testament. But favoring one over the other is indeed disastrous. But he gave her that full portion because he loved her and secondly, because the Lord had closed her womb. Now he's displaying his love and deep compassion. He's showing that there is something favorable about this woman and he did not totally understand but the very fact that the phrase is given implies that he was very much aware that this was the Lord's doing. There is a phrase in the old scriptures of the book of Psalms, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. But here we might say this is the Lord's doing and we cannot understand why. 
Sometimes the providence of God comes like a dark cloud in thunderstorms. He didn't know why she was suffering in this way. She loved children. She would have been great with children. But he did not express express resentment toward her. That's amazing. He did not blame her, although many did, because he understood the theological truth that God had closed the womb. This is the hand of God. Someone had said we should see in every situation in life, especially those unwelcomed, that all things that come our way come by the hand of God. He is sovereign over all that happens and over all that doesn't happen in our world. And this requires not necessarily acceptance, but cheerful submission. She saw, he saw the hand of God in it all. So that's the good man. Our first impression of Elkanah is he is a man who took the Lord seriously and was attentive to all the responsibilities he had before God. A virtuous man, good man. And now take a look at Hannah, the unfortunate woman, or we might call Hannah at this stage in her life, a poor woman. Because, verse 6, the Lord had closed her womb. I think only a woman who longs for children who cannot have them knows the pain described in this verse. She joins the fellowship of the godly Sarah from the book of Genesis who could not bear children to Abraham even though he had been given a great promise of a large posterity that would be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, and yet she could not bear children, which for her was unbearable. Pain of all pains. A constant reminder every month that she does not measure up. And the others whisper, Because there is a curse in the Old Testament that if you don't obey God, you will be childless. The problem is, is that everyone who's childless is not a person who disobeyed God and under that curse, but we just apply it to everyone. (laughs) Must be something wrong with you, Hannah. She suffered greatly because the Lord had closed her womb, but that was not all of her suffering. She had the blessed advantage of having a rival woman or sister who provoked her, verse six tells us. Her rival. (laughs) You know, we, we get the picture sometimes from those who believe in the plurality of marriages or a marriage with a plurality of wives This is a happy thing. We even have a TV show that comes out. Happy this, happy that. It's nothing happy at all because it's so far outside of God's perfect plan. She became a rival. Why? She wasn't getting the love from Elkanah that she wanted. Penina wasn't. And so Penina kept provoking her in order 
to irritate her. There is no missing her motive. And this went on year after year. Maybe they lived somewhat separately during the rest of the year, but when they had to come together for the festival and the 15-mile trip to Shiloh, this is the time when Panina let loose. Mommy, how come Miss Hannah doesn't have any kids? Well, God hasn't blessed her with children. What did she do? I don't know. Nobody knows. The impression is, implication is she did something, and it must have been horrible. Apparently, God doesn't care about Miss Hannah. Apparently, God has forgotten. And when you and I are going through difficult trials of life that we cannot understand, there's always someone around to give a theological interpretation that is way off base and ends up with this. God has forgotten you. Ever felt that way? You should say yes. And these arrogant These vicious verbal attacks stemming from an arrogant attitude and a desire to gain her husband's love happened year after year after year. Whenever Hannah went up, verse 7, to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. So, she was deeply depressed. That's my reading of verse 7. So emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually upset that she couldn't eat. And she was crying all the time. Now her husband, being the loving man that he was, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Now when you think about it, those really sound like stupid questions. Don't they? I mean... The husband attempts to help. That's what he's doing. And it comes from a kind heart. But sometimes kind-hearted people can ask the dumbest questions. And then he says something that really is quite astounding when he says to her, why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now again, take this in the best possible way, but every time I read it, it sounds pretty arrogant. You've got me. Why should you cry? You know, women, sometimes who aren't married or don't have children, can be very depressed. Sometimes women who have children and a husband can be very depressed because of it. I think this guy meant well, but it just doesn't quite come along right. She's deeply broken in spirit and downhearted in all that he does doesn't help. He was powerless to change her situation, but yet he still treated her gently. And his words had some effect because in verse 9, apparently she's eating and drinking. There was a time, we don't know exactly when it is, during one of these festivals where she was at the table. It was in Shiloh, and after they had finished eating and drinking, and it seems to imply that she was doing the same, Hannah stood up, verse 9. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. 
just giving us a little locator there for this man who at this point in time, we must understand, is the best leader Israel has. We have just come out of the time of judges when everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. And there was no leader. There were judges who came and went. There was a cycle of belief and sin and judgment and then repentance and belief and then sin and judgment. A cycle six times over, seven times over. But here's your best leader, Eli the priest sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Hannah gets up and apparently goes toward the temple in bitterness of soul. Hannah wept much and she prayed to the Lord. Now this is what I find astounding. To the same biblical revelation of the same theological truth, the Lord had closed her womb you have three different responses. Elkanah favors her. He pities her and treats her ten tenderly. Panina irritates her and takes this as an advantage and assures her that God has forgotten, doesn't care. But Hannah prays to the God who closed her womb. She who was passive no longer stays passive. And her actions at this moment will turn out not only to change her life, but to change the life of Israel, and we might even say, change the history of the world. Mothers have the power to do that, you know. Look at verse 11, and this is part of her prayer. I'm just going to read through it, then we'll come back and make some comments. But verse 11, and she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, don't forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Let me just say that that is the language of the Nazarite vow and the last well-known Nazarite vow taker was a judge named Samson. And maybe her prayer is make my son the new Samson. The Nazarite vow was temporary. She says I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Verse 12, and she kept on praying to the Lord, and Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought, she's drunk. And he rebuked her and said, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Now what is so astounding about this? is that Eli can't even control his own two sons who were mentioned to us, Hophni and Phinehas, who were constantly getting drunk. And apparently if he couldn't control them, he thought he'd take a shot at this poor woman. And I want you to know that many of our conclusions and judgments about others based on 
observation are almost always wrong. Almost always wrong. Because we don't know the whole story. But that doesn't stop us from making judgments. She's drunk. Get rid of your wine. She says in verse 15, not so, my Lord, I'm not drunk. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. That's an interesting translation, but I like it. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. In chapter two, the two sons of Eli will be called wicked men. But she says, I am not a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli completely misunderstood what was going on and attacked her. Hannah was simply someone deep in misery and trouble. Now, what we have here, and we'll just mention, mention it briefly, are the important elements of a good prayer. Number one, she was deeply, she felt deeply her need. If you go through the text, we're told in verse 10 that there was bitterness of soul, which means disappointment and discontent with her situation. She was weeping, her tears are repeated, and they must have been tears that were flowing. She was sobbing because of her heart. She was in misery, verse 11, deeply troubled, verse 15, and filled with anguish and grief. She was an unhappy woman. Now, while all prayer is not motivated by this, all prayer needs to be motivated by the fact that we have a need that we cannot meet and only God can meet it. That's where prayer starts. It starts with feeling destitute. And if you do, do not feel your need, you will not go to God in prayer. Your lack of prayer is a declaration of your independence and your self-sufficiency and my lack of prayer as well. And she prayed to the Lord, that's the second thing. Isn't that amazing? Aim your prayers heavenward. She acknowledged his majesty by calling him almighty. Our father who art in heaven. She recognized that he sat on the throne and she also recognized that he had closed her womb. Now we need to understand something called, one writer puts it, faith logic. For on the one hand you would think what God does as sovereign of the world, we should never try to change, right? But the logic of faith has a different perspective. To know that your suffering has come ultimately from God's hand, if you don't respond well, could turn into fatalism. There's nothing I can do. Woe is me. If God is sovereign, then who am I to do anything but possibly accept my lot? But that's not the logic of faith. On the other hand, the knowledge that God, the Lord, 
is the one who's brought about my tragic experience could lead to resentment. This has happened to some of you. Well, God, if you're going to treat me like this, I want nothing to do with you. Have you ever said that? Do you know people who have said that and aren't here today because of it? If God has done this to me, I want nothing to do with him. But that's not the logic of faith. Faith in God means knowing and trusting that God is sovereign and God is good. You know where I learned that? I learned that in a public school. When we were taught to pray before we drank stale crackers and sour milk, kindergarten class, and our teacher said, let's pray, and all of us prayed together, public school, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. I'm thankful I never tied together the poor meal and the goodness of God. But the point is, he is sovereign and he is good. That's the logic of faith. For we know that he causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Therefore, nothing in all of God's creation can separate us from the love of God. So faith grabs hold of God and passionately gives its request to God. Best example is Jesus in the garden. Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. The mystery of her language here is kind of interesting because she prays as though God has forgotten her. Did you catch that in verse 11? Remember me, Lord. Don't forget your servant. But that's the language of human experience. God never forgets and God always knows. And she came to his sovereign omniscience but in the language of prayer, offers up this prayer, just as the psalmist does time and time again. And as we see in the book of Isaiah, God has not forgotten us. She made a vow, verse 11, deeply committed. Now it's a misunderstanding to think that she was bargaining for God. If you do this, I'll do this. Give me a son and I'll do this. She wasn't bargaining with God, but she made a vow. If I do have a son, Lord, if you are pleased to give me one, he's yours. And then there is humility. Verse 11, she calls herself a servant. This is striking. Because we're going to see another woman who prays a similar language. By the way, this appears to be the language of the Exodus. Exodus chapter three, verse seven. When God looked upon the affliction of his people, he came to deliver them. And she is praying very similar language, I'm told, in the original Hebrew. If you will only look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me. Those are the very words that were used in Exodus. God remembered his people. 
in Egypt. And he came to deliver them by his mighty grace and his great power. She was merely begging God to do what God had already done to Israel. And she made it personal. Her faith was genuine and real and not make-believe. It was confidence upon the character of God, what he is like, and the works of God, what he has done. And we see that God's response to Hannah's need is much like his response to Israel's need. For he comes to deliver his people. And this, this whole event is the beginning of that. All true prayer needs to be like Hannah's prayer in the sense that we dare to speak to God because God has spoken to us. God has given us promises and we dare to take them literally. God has spoken to us and so we dare to pray to him. And she kept on praying, verse 12. Kept on praying. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then one of my favorites is the fact that she was praying in her heart, verse 13. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips weren't moving. You know that you can pray without verbal words. In fact, verbal words without heart prayer is useless. That's what Pharisees do. It's far better to pray in secret from your heart. All prayer needs to be motivated from the heart. But here's the best definition that you'll find on prayer, and this is in verse 15. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. That's what prayer is all about. And I'm sure there are many mothers here who are pouring out their souls for their children. Children maybe they don't have and want, or children that they do have and want to see them come to the Lord. Faith understands there's no one where else to go. It's not God's anger that has brought this situation about. It is his goodness. There's a purpose for it. Remember the man born blind? Who sinned? John chapter 9. Who sinned? His mom or his dad or this guy? None of them sinned, they said. But this was done for the glory of God. He's got a purpose in it all to show that he's both sovereign and good. And then finally we come in this wonderful story from the virtuous man and the unfortunate woman to the almighty God. First, it comes by way of assurance from the man of God in verse 17 when Hannah told him, Eli, she wasn't drunk, he said, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. Eli didn't know that the answer to her prayer would mean that he would be replaced. For the son that Hannah will have is none other than Samuel, the kingmaker, and he will become the leader. Verse 18, she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. 
This is the best kind of facelift you can ever have. Despondent, discouraged, and everything about her countenance spoke that there is no God. He's forgotten me if he exists. Everything around me is against me. I'm about ready to die. Give me children or I die. And now God is going to answer her prayer. And her face is radiant. In the first place, her prayer is going to change her. In the second place, this prayer is going to change Israel. Because God is working in this book of 1 Samuel to establish a new leader over the people of God. Ultimately, King David, who is a type of Christ. Hannah cast all her care upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for her. That's how you pray. Knowing he cares for you, in spite of what you may think, in spite of how you read your situation, God has not forgotten you, and God cares for you. So you have the assurance from the man of God and then you have the answer from almighty God. For it says in verse 19, early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord and went back home to Ramah. Elkanah lay with his wife Hannah and the Lord, what does it say? Remembered her. The Lord remembered, he never forgotten, but when the Bible says the Lord remembers someone, it means Now's the time to act. The Lord remembered her, and so in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because I asked of the Lord. We have not because we ask not. The answer to Hannah's prayer is part of the greater answer of God's plan for Israel. And Samuel will be the kingmaker. What lessons can we take from this portion of scripture? Well, we might say, well, let's follow Elkanah and be husbands who are kind and loving and sensitive and compassionate and good providers for their family. And that's not a bad application, but that's not the main one. You say, oh, the the story is about Hannah, so it must be about how God pulls us out of desperation when we pray, and although that's a good lesson, that's not the main part of the story. By the way, this story doesn't teach us that if you pray to God with a broken heart, in faith, making a vow, with humility of spirit, and you keep, that God is going to give you a child. Many a barren woman has come to this text praying that they too will have a child and it's not taken place because this was indeed an unusual situation. So what is then the real meaning of the text? Well, it's not about Elkanah, it's not about Hannah, it's about the Almighty God who does care for us and does answer our prayers. The point of the story is God will not forget you. He didn't forget the nation of Israel and he will not forget you 
if you have given your heart to him. Hannah becomes the mother of the kingmaker, Samuel. In chapter two of this book, she prays, my heart rejoices in the Lord and my horn is exalted in the Lord. I'll smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And a thousand years later, another soon-to-be mom prays these exact words. It's found in Luke chapter 1, Mary's Magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. You see, when we ask God to remember us, he has in the greatest way by sending his son to be our Lord and Savior. And if that's not deliverance, nothing is. So remember this, 1 Peter chapter 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves then under God's mighty hand so that in due time he will exalt you. Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. He's not forgotten you. And he sent you a son. Let's pray. Oh, Father, to those who are hurting and without hope, may they see the beautiful picture of Jesus in this story. Lord, may we learn the lessons of recognizing that all that comes our way comes from your hand, and the way to, to deal with those situations is not to resent you it's not to become fatalistic, but to pray to you, to the one who can change the situation and willingly submit ourselves to your perfect will. Cause us, Lord, to see that though a woman may forget her child, a mother may forget the son of her womb, surely, Lord, you will never forget us. And for that, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.